Chapter Three, Part One of A Wonder Book for Girls and Boys by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall from clivecatterall.com. The Paradise of Children, Part One. The golden days of October passed away, as so many other Octobers have and brown November likewise, and the greater part of chill December, too. At last came Merry Christmas, and Eustace Bright along with it, making it all the merrier by his presence. And the day after his arrival from college there came a mighty snowstorm. Up to this time the winter had held back, and had given us a good many mild days, which were like smiles upon its wrinkled visage. The grass had kept itself green in sheltered places, such as the nooks of southern hill-slopes and along the lee of the stone fences. It was but a week or two ago, and since the beginning of the month, that the children found a dandelion in bloom on the margin of Shadow Brook, where it glides out of the dell. But no more green grass and dandelions now. This was such a snowstorm. Twenty miles of it might have been visible at once between the windows of Tanglewood and the dome of Taconic had it been possible to see so far among the eddying drifts that whitened all the atmosphere. It seemed as if the hills were giants, and were flinging monstrous handfuls of snow at one another in their enormous sport. So thick were the fluttering snowflakes, that even the trees midway down the valley were hidden by them the greater part of the time. Sometimes, it is true, the little prisoners of Tanglewood could discern a dim outline of Monument Mountain, and the smooth whiteness of the frozen lake at its base, and the black or grey tracts of woodland in the nearest landscape. But these were merely peeps through the tempest. Nevertheless, the children rejoiced greatly in the snowstorm. They had already made acquaintance with it by tumbling heels overhead into its highest drifts, and flinging snow at one another, as we have just fancied the Berkshire Mountains to be doing. And now they had come back to their spacious playroom, which was as big as the great dining-room, and was lumbered with all sorts of playthings, large and small. The biggest was a rocking-horse that looked like a real pony, and there was a whole family of wooden, waxen, plaster, and china dolls, besides rag-babies, and blocks enough to build Bunker Hill Monument, and nine-pins and balls, and humming-tops and battledores, and grey-sticks, and skipping-ropes, and more of such valuable property than I could tell of in a printed page. But the children liked the snowstorm better than all. It suggested so many brisk enjoyments for tomorrow and all the remainder of the winter. The sleigh-ride, the slides downhill into the valley, the snow-images that were to be shaped out, the snow-fortresses that were to be built, and the snowballing to be carried on. So the little folks blessed the snowstorm, and were glad to see it come thicker and thicker, and watched hopefully the long drift that was piling itself up in the avenue, and was already higher than any of their heads. "'Why, we shall be blocked up till spring!' cried they, with the hugest delight. "'What a pity that the house is too high to be quite covered up! The little red house down yonder will be buried up to its eaves!' "'You silly children! What do you want of more snow?' asked Eustace, who, tired of some novel that he was skimming through, had strolled into the playroom. "'It has done mischief enough already, by spoiling the only skating that I could hope for through the winter. We shall see nothing more of the lake till April.' and this was to have been my first day upon it. Don't you pity me, Primrose?' "'Oh, to be sure,' answered Primrose, laughing. "'But for your comfort we will listen to another of your old stories, 
such as you told us under the porch, and down in the hollow by Shadow Brook. Perhaps I shall like them better now, when there is nothing to do, than while there were nuts to be gathered, and beautiful weather to enjoy. Hereupon, Periwinkle, Clover, Sweet Fern, and as many others of the little fraternity and cousinhood as were still at Tanglewood, gathered about Eustace, and earnestly besought him for a story. The student yawned, stretched himself, and then, to the vast admiration of the small people, skipped three times back and forth over the top of a chair, in order, as he explained to them, to set his wits in motion. "'Well, well, children,' said he, after these preliminaries, "'since you insist, and Primrose has set her heart upon it, I will see what can be done for you. And that you may know what happy days there were before snowstorms came into fashion, I will tell you a story of the oldest of all old times, when the world was as new as Sweet Fern's brand-new humming-top. There was then but one season in the year, and that was the delightful summer, and but one age for mortals, and that was childhood. "'I never heard of that before,' said Primrose. "'Of course you never did,' answered Eustace. It shall be a story of what nobody but myself ever dreamed of, a paradise of children. And now, by the naughtiness of just such a little imp as Primrose here, it all came to nothing. Sir Eustace Bright sat down in the chair which he had just been skipping over, took cowslip upon his knee, and ordered silence throughout the auditory, and began a story about a sad, naughty child, whose name was Pandora, and about her playfellow, Epimetheus. You may read it word for word in the pages that come next. Long, long ago, when this old world was in its tender infancy, there was a child named Epimetheus, who never had either father or mother. And that he might not be lonely, another child, fatherless and motherless like himself, was sent from a far country to live with him and be his playfellow and helpmate. Her name was Pandora. The first thing that Pandora saw when she entered the cottage where Epimetheus dwelt was a great box. And almost the first question which she put to him after crossing the threshold was this. Epimetheus, what have you in that box? My dear little Pandora, answered Epimetheus, that is a secret, and you must be kind enough not to ask any questions about it. The box was left here to be kept safely and I do not myself know what it contains. "'But who gave it to you?' asked Pandora. "'And where did it come from?' "'That is a secret, too,' replied Epimetheus. "'How provoking!' exclaimed Pandora, pouting her lip. "'I wish the great ugly box were out of the way.' "'Oh, come, don't think of it any more,' cried Epimetheus. "'Let us run out of doors and have some nice play with the other children.' It is thousands of years since Epimetheus and Pandora were alive and the world nowadays is a very different sort of thing from what it was in their time. Then everybody was a child. There needed no fathers and mothers to take care of the children, because there was no danger nor trouble of any kind, no clothes to be mended, and there was always plenty to eat and drink. Whenever a child wanted his dinner, he found it growing on a tree, and if he looked at the tree in the morning, he could see the expanding blossom of that night's supper, or, at eventide, he saw the tender bud of tomorrow's breakfast. It was a very pleasant life, indeed. No labour to be done, no tasks to be studied, nothing but sports and dances and sweet voices of children talking or carolling like birds or gushing out in merry laughter throughout the livelong day. What was most wonderful of all, 
the children never quarrelled among themselves. Neither had they any crying fits, nor since time first began had a single one of these little mortals ever gone apart into a corner and sulked. Oh, what a good time that was to be alive in! The truth is, those ugly little winged monsters called Troubles, which are now almost as numerous as mosquitoes, had never yet been seen on earth. It is probable that the very greatest disquietude which a child ever experienced was Pandora's vexation at not being able to discover the secret of the mysterious box. This was at first only the faint shadow of a trouble, but every day it grew more and more substantial, until, before a great while, the cottage of Epimetheus and Pandora was less sunshiny than those of the other children. "'Whence can the box have come?' Pandora continually kept saying to herself and to Epimetheus. "'And what in the world can be inside of it?' "'Always talking about this box,' said Epimetheus at last, for he had grown extremely tired of the subject. "'I wish, dear Pandora, you would try to think of something else. Come, let us go and gather some ripe figs, and eat them under the trees, for our supper. And I know a vine that has the sweetest and juiciest grapes you ever tasted.' "'Always talking about grapes and figs,' cried Pandora pettishly. "'Well, then,' cried Epimetheus, who was a very good-tempered child, like a multitude of children in those days, let us run out and have a merry time with our playmates. I am tired of merry times, and don't care if I never have any more, answered our pettish little Pandora. And besides, I never do have any. This ugly box! Why am I so taken up with thinking about it all the time? I insist upon you telling me what is inside of it. As I have already said fifty times over, I do not know, replied Epimetheus, getting a little vexed. How, then, can I tell you what is inside? "'You might open it,' said Pandora, looking sideways at Epimetheus. "'And then we could see for ourselves.' "'Pandora, what are you thinking of?' exclaimed Epimetheus, and his face expressed so much horror at the idea of looking into a box which had been confided to him on the condition of his never opening it, that Pandora thought it best not to suggest it any more. Still, however, she could not help thinking and talking about the box. "'At least,' said she, "'you can tell me how it came here.' "'It was just left at the door,' replied Epimetheus, "'just before you came, by a person who looked very smiling and intelligent, "'and who could hardly forbear from laughing as he put it down. "'He was dressed in an odd kind of cloak, "'and had on a cap that seemed to be made partly of feathers, "'so that it looked almost as if it had wings. "'What sort of staff had he?' asked Pandora. "'Oh, the most curious staff you ever saw!' cried Epimetheus. "'It was like two serpents twisting around a stick and was carved so naturally that I, at first, thought the serpents were alive. "'I know him,' said Pandora thoughtfully. "'Nobody else has such a staff. It was Quicksilver, and he brought me hither as well as the box. No doubt he intended it for me, and most probably it contains pretty dresses for me to wear, or toys for you and me to play with, or something very nice for us both to eat.' "'Perhaps so,' answered Epimetheus, turning away. But until Quicksilver comes back and tells us so, we have neither of us any right to lift the lid of the box." "'What a dull boy he is!' muttered Pandora, as Epimetheus left the cottage. "'I do wish he had a little more enterprise.' For the first time since her arrival, Epimetheus had gone out without asking Pandora to accompany him. He went to gather figs and grapes by himself, or to seek whatever amusement he could find in other society than his little playfellows. He was tired to death of hearing about the box, 
and heartily wished that Quicksilver, or whatever was the messenger's name, had left it at some other child's door, where Pandora would never have set eyes on it. So perseveringly as she did babble about this one thing, the box, the box, and nothing but the box. It seemed as if the box were bewitched, and as if the cottage were not big enough to hold it without Pandora's continually stumbling over it, and making Epimetheus stumble over it likewise, and bruising all four of their shins. Well, it was really hard that poor Epimetheus should have a box in his ears from morning till night, especially as the little people of the earth were so unaccustomed to vexations in those happy days that they knew not how to deal with them. Thus a small vexation made as much disturbance then as a far bigger one would in our own times. After Epimetheus was gone, Pandora stood gazing at the box. She had called it ugly above a hundred times, but, in spite of all that she had said against it, it was positively a very handsome article of furniture, and would have been quite an ornament to any room in which it should be placed. It was made of a beautiful kind of wood, with dark and rich veins spreading over its surface, which was so highly polished that little Pandora could see her face in it. And as the child had no other looking-glass, it is odd that she did not value the box merely on this account. The edges and corners of the box were carved with most wonderful skill. Around the margin there were figures of graceful men and women, and the prettiest children ever seen, reclining or sporting amid a profusion of flowers and foliage. And these various objects were so exquisitely represented, and were wrought together in such harmony, that flowers, foliage, and human beings seemed to combine into a wreath of mingled beauty. But here and there, peeping forth from behind the carved foliage, Pandora once or twice fancied that she saw a face not so lovely, or something or other that was disagreeable, and which stole the beauty out of all the rest. Nevertheless, on looking more closely, and touching the spot with her finger, she could discover nothing of the kind. Some face that was really beautiful had been made to look ugly by her catching a sideways glimpse at it. The most beautiful face of all was done in what is called high relief, in the centre of the lid. There was nothing else, save the dark smooth richness of the polished wood, and this one face in the centre, with a garland of flowers about its brow. Pandora had looked at this face a great many times, and imagined that the mouth could smile if it liked, or be grave when it chose, the same as any living mouth. The features, indeed, all wore a very lively and rather mischievous expression, which looked almost as if it needs must burst out of the carved lips and utter itself into words. Had the mouth spoken, it would probably have been something like this. Do not be afraid, Pandora. What harm can there be in opening the box? Never mind that poor simple Epimetheus. You are wiser than he, and have ten times as much spirit. Open the box, and see if you do not find something very pretty." The box, I had almost forgotten to say, was fastened, not by a lock, nor by any other such contrivance, but by a very intricate knot of gold cord. There appeared to be no end to this knot, and no beginning. Never was a knot so cunningly twisted, nor with so many ins and outs which roguishly defied the skilfullest fingers to disentangle them. And yet, by the very difficulty there was in it, Pandora was the more tempted to examine the knot, and just see how it was made. Two or three times already had she stooped over the box, and taken the knot between her thumb and forefinger, but without positively trying to undo it. "'I really believe,' she said to herself, "'that I begin to see how it was done. Nay, perhaps I could tie it up again, after undoing it. 
There would be no harm in that, surely, even Epimetheus could not blame me for that. I need not open the box, and should not, of course, without the foolish boy's consent, even if the knot were untied. It might have been better for Pandora, if she had had a little work to do, or anything to employ her mind upon, so as not to be so constantly thinking of this one subject. But children led so easy a life before any troubles came into the world, that they had really a great deal too much leisure. They could not be forever playing at hide-and-seek among the flower-shrubs, or at blind-man's buff with garlands over their eyes, or at whatever other games had been found out while Mother Earth was in her babyhood. When life is all sport, toil is the real play. There was absolutely nothing to do. A little sweeping and dusting about the cottage, I suppose, and the gathering of fresh flowers, which were only too abundant everywhere, and arranging them in vases, and poor little Pandora's day's work was over. And then, for the rest of the day, there was the box. After all, I am not quite sure that the box was not a blessing to her in its way. It supplied her with such a variety of ideas to think of and to talk about whenever she had anybody to listen. When she was in a good humour, she could admire the bright polish of its sides and the rich border of beautiful faces and foliage that ran all around it. Or, if she chanced to be ill-tempered, she could give it a push or kick it with her naughty little foot and many a kick did the box, but it was a mischievous box, as we shall see, and deserved all it got, many a kick did it receive. But certain it is, if it had not been for the box, our active-minded little Pandora would not have known half so well how to spend her time as she now did. For it was really an endless employment to guess what was inside. What could it be, indeed? Just imagine, my little hearers, how busy your wits would be if there were a great box in the house which, as you might have reason to suppose, contained something new and pretty for your Christmas or New Year's gifts. Do you think you should be less curious than Pandora? If you were left alone with the box, might you not feel a little tempted to lift the lid? But you would not do it. Oh, fie! No, no! Only if you thought there were toys in it, it would be so very hard to let slip an opportunity of taking just one peep. I do not know whether Pandora expected any toys, for none had yet begun to be made, probably in those days, when the world itself was one great plaything for the children that dwelt upon it. But Pandora was convinced that there was something very beautiful and valuable in the box, and therefore she felt just as anxious to take a peep as any of these little girls here around me would have felt, and possibly a little more so. But of that I'm not quite so certain. On this particular day, however, which we have so long been talking about, her curiosity grew so much greater than it usually was, that, at last, she approached the box. She was more than half determined to open it if she could. Ah, naughty Pandora! First, however, she tried to lift it. It was heavy, quite too heavy for the slender strength of a child like Pandora. She raised one end of the box a few inches from the floor, and let it fall again, with a pretty loud thump. A moment afterwards, she almost fancied that she heard something stir inside of the box. She applied her ear as closely as possible and listened. Positively, there did seem to be a kind of stifled murmur within. Or was it merely the singing in Pandora's ears, or could it be the beating of her heart? The child could not quite satisfy herself whether she had heard anything or no. But at all events, her curiosity was stronger than ever. As she drew back her head, her eyes fell upon the knot of gold cord. 
"'It must have been a very ingenious person who tied this knot,' said Pandora to herself. "'But I think I could untie it nevertheless. I am resolved at least to find the two ends of the cord.' So she took the golden knot in her fingers, and pried into its intricacies as sharply as she could. Almost without intending it, or quite knowing what she was about, she was soon busily engaged in attempting to undo it. Meanwhile the bright sunshine came through the open window, as did likewise the merry voices of the children playing at a distance, and perhaps the voice of Epimetheus among them. Pandora stopped to listen. What a beautiful day it was! Would it not be wiser, if she were to let the troublesome knot alone, and think no more about the box, but run and join her little playfellows and be happy? All this time, however, her fingers were half unconsciously busy with the knot, and happening to glance at the flower-wreathed face on the lid of the enchanted box, she seemed to perceive it slyly grinning at her. "'That face looks very mischievous,' thought Pandora. "'I wonder whether it smiles because I am doing wrong. I have the greatest mind in the world to run away.' But just then, by the merest accident, she gave the knot a kind of twist, which produced a wonderful result. The gold cord untwined itself as if by magic, and left the box without a fastening. "'This is the strangest thing I ever knew,' said Pandora. "'What will Epimetheus say? And how can I possibly tie it up again?' She made one or two attempts to restore the knot, but soon found it quite beyond her skill. It had disentangled itself so suddenly that she could not in the least remember how the strings had been doubled into one another. And when she tried to recollect the shape and appearance of the knot, it seemed to have gone entirely out of her mind. Nothing was to be done, therefore, but to let the box remain as it was until Epimetheus should come in. But, said Pandora, when he finds the knot untied, he will know that I have done it. How shall I make him believe that I have not looked into the box? And then the thought came into her naughty little heart, that, since she would be suspected of having looked into the box, she might as well do so at once. Oh, very naughty and very foolish Pandora! You should have thought only of doing what was right, and of leaving undone what was wrong, and not of what your playfellow Epimetheus would have said or believed. And so, perhaps, she might, if the enchanted face on the lid of the box had not looked so bewitchingly persuasive at her, and if she had not seemed to hear, more distinctly than before, the murmur of small voices within. She could not tell whether it was fancy or no, but there was quite a little tumult of whispers in her ear, or else it was her curiosity that whispered, "'Let us out, dear Pandora, pray let us out. We will be such nice pretty playfellows for you, only let us out.' "'What can it be?' thought Pandora. "'Is there something alive in the box?' "'Well, yes, I am resolved to take just one peep, only one peep, and then the lid shall be shut down as safely as ever. There cannot possibly be any harm in just one little peep.'" End of chapter 3, part 1